0: You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today.
1: We have to return to what we can do individually, you know, and and Mother Teresa said wonderfully that courage is doing small things with love. So I think, you know, like, if I put my hand in water, I don't need you to tell me it's wet. And I know what pain is. I know what love is. I know what safety is. I know what betrayal is. We, How do we restore? We can discuss how they, we can interpret how these things came to be and what do we do with them. But the fact of our experience, if we restore our direct connection of life, if we open our heart and our present, and, th- and this we will be more grounded and we will be able to endure the storms that was mark nepo a poet
0: spiritual advisor new york times best-selling author and return guest to the productive flourishing podcast in today's conversation we discuss themes from his latest book surviving storms finding the strength to meet adversity while some of the ideas of the book were bubbling up before the pandemic As you might imagine, the storm that was and is COVID-19 catalyzed Mark's ideas on the topic. Listen in as we discuss the necessity of storms, the fault lines that make surviving storms harder these days than in the past, how the old world is gone, and of course, lots of references to and weaving in of spiritual and philosophical insights. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Mark, thanks so much for joining um, joining me on the Productive Flourishing podcast. As I was saying in the green room this is, I believe, our third book that we've had to have a con- that we've gotten had a conversation about, and every time I'm like, "Ooh, I want to read that book again, more slowly, um, and then come back to it a year later." Um, especially because of the topic of surviving storms. So, thanks so much for joining us for the third time on the show.
1: Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be with you again.
0: I have some thoughts about this, um, and I don't remember seeing it specifically addressed, but when did this book come to you?
1: Well, it began before the pandemic and then kind of intensified during it. So it took about three, three and a half years to, I like to say, retrieve more than author.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, I absolutely understand that. And so what was during, before pandemic that you're like, oh, there's this concept of storms and it's way in which it shapes us that was starting to stir and and cook for you.
1: Well, I think that, you know, my whole life, it's been like, uh, gaining an increasing understanding of what I would call spiritual physics, that just like there's laws of gravity. Well, there's laws of transformation and what it is to be human and to be a spirit and a body. Uh, in time on earth. And so, you know, I'm, I'm 71, which if I met someone my age when I was younger, I thought they were ancient. It doesn't seem so old right now. Um, but, in, you, know, you know, from my other work, in my 30s, I almost died from a rare form of lymphoma. And I think that was the beginning of my introduction to what I'm exploring here. And, and you know, that is the unavoidable work of being human, of facing the friction of life, of uh, you know, I think that' suffering, no one signs up for it. yeah, we you know right? but it's um it is for humans what erosion is to nature and and so, you know i've I've long since almost dying, been a student of this paradox and you know have been working with it how we're we're more than what is done to us we must face what is done to us but we're more than what is done to us and and we're shaped you know life has been made just difficult enough that we need each other i think to ensure the journey of love and and so then you know the pandemic became an intensified field of all this. Uh, It is real. The difficulties we find ourselves in are real. Uh, They're not to be, I think, rationalized or minimized. And every generation has its turn, and this is ours. Uh, You know, in my parents' generation, it was World War II. I mean, every generation has... uh, a threshold through which we are asked to decide will we choose love over fear will we choose compassion over self-interest what are we going to do here and i think we're at that place again um so I, i feel very realistically sober about where we are but i still believe in human kindness and in the inherent uh web of connection in all of life and we will we will outlast this too.
0: Well you and I are for many different reasons deeply involved in the book journey and especially for you the journey of surviving a storm. So bring us in a little bit like what are you exploring in Surviving Storms? And again, I, I think there is an interesting thread of when this started for you because there was something pre-pandemic, right? There was something, and maybe it was just the difficulties that you mentioned, like the the isolations that we have. So there could have been some of that that was floating yeah. around, and then just yeah. the pandemic created a, a, a catalytic. It reminds me, you probably know, I, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but there's a substance that's like a liquid And it's got all the sort of properties in there, but like if you thump it or if you put it in something, it changes into a solid, it like freezes instantly. Yeah. yeah, Right. And so as I was reading, that's, that's what I got the sense is that this was floating in there and then the pandemic, the pandemic just thumped it and it crystallized.
1: Well, I think that, you know, you, you know, from the book. So, so two things I would share here, you know, one is, which I talk about in the, the opening chapter that the old world is gone. and, you know this was really triggered for me because I had this I think a lot of people who've gone through life-threatening things perhaps were triggered to recall certain moments as the pandemic hit all of humanity and for me it was it made me in a very visceral way remember the moment I was diagnosed and uh, with can a rare form of lymphoma and I was in my early thirties and I had a tumor growing in my skull and I finally went to a doctor and You know, when I was told that I had cancer after, you know, being frightened and I say, are you sure you got the right folder? Is it you sure it's me? (laughs) And um, but then the door I came through to keep that appointment was gone when I left. There was no way back to life before that appointment. The old world was gone. And I think the pandemic has done this for all of humanity. And and we have parts of society, global society, that are struggling with that. We don't want to accept it. We want to deny it. We want to be angry about it. We want to blame someone. Um, The old world is gone. There is no going back. And the only way is to love each other forward. So with that kind of eternal urgency... You know what i what I was trying to do was take my in the first part of the book, as you can see, I was trying to take my guess at how did we wind up where we are today in our society, and then spend the rest of the book, the remaining two thirds of the book, really enlisting all the timeless practices and gifts and resources of heart and spirit that we can use now, today, to address this appearance of this difficulty. So that's what I was trying to do. And again, I don't, have, as we've talked before, I don't have any answers. I'm just taking my guess like everybody else. And, um, but I, you know, I found some really kind of, uh, as you mentioned, like a perfect storm of what I were, have been calling fault lines in society, cultural, I mean, not just in America, all over the world, that have been kind of cracking if you will since the industrial revolution if not before
0: so i love your breakdown of this as fault lines right and, and just what was there and i and i, I there are so many super poignant distri- descriptions and i i love your classic humility about not having the answers because as I was reading this I was like he's doing a fantastic job of oh, thank you sense making sense making and giving some broader coherence like you've been an elder for 40 years you know that right once you wrote the book of but like you're doing that unique job that elders can do for us which is take the moment and put it on a broader frame that gives it a A part of it makes it part of the human journey. Yeah. But also reminds us that it's a moment and it transitions into something else. So, good job on that. But what are those
1: fault lines? Yeah. Thank you. So, thank you for that. And there there are several. And, you know, one goes back to the Industrial Revolution, where um, this is the first time in, in history that where we live and where we work is separated. You know, before that, everything was mostly farming, so you where you lived and worked with the same thing, and you were involved in an entire process from seed to harvest. Well, now all of a sudden, we have factories. Now people have to break up their life and go to work and return home, and even while they're there, they're involved in a partial process. They're not involved in the whole process. So this starts to work on who we are, and you know, Karl Marx back then in 1844, and Karl Marx often gets a bad rap. Uh, Marx didn't create Marxism, dictators did. Um, but he had some some really potent insights about society, and this was one of them. He was there seeing this happen, and he didn't say, oh, progress is bad. He said, I can foresee that this break of wholeness, this break in relationship, is is going to start to divorce citizens from their basic human nature. And if you have enough citizens, Marx said, divorced from their basic human nature, you will have an alien nation. And he coined the term alienation. In fact, he foresaw the first generation of therapists as alienists at, whose job was to repair people to their basic human nature. And that's, now we jump ahead, that's very relevant today. We need to be repaired to our basic human nature. And that's what we need uh, mental health workers and social workers and therapists to be focusing on. So that's one major fault line. Of course, another one, which uh, goes all the way back further in America Uh, over 400 years was the inception of slavery. You know, when we have the founding fathers who were not gods. They were mostly good people who had a lot of blind spots and faults. And so ever since America convened the most amazing experiment of freedom in the world that we've known while owning other people, Hello. You know, I, I, you know, and we have been in this moral tension as a country ever since then between loving the world and bending the world. So that's a fault line that has, keeps getting uh, wider and wider until we can get rid of it. But there are some other things that, that are also, ver- and again, I don't think anybody orchestrated these. I think it was uh, kind of happened in our in our lifetime. But now you take, okay, what I was trying to name as the dissolution of reality. So here we have 50, 60 years ago, you know, movies were seen as presenting what we agreed was not reality for entertainment or respite or to to lose ourselves in imagination for a while and maybe explore real things that we could then reflect on in our real lives. And then, you know, you all of a sudden you had for the first time, I think we go to Ronald Reagan was the first actor elected president. Then you had Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor and there was a professional wrestler who was made a governor of Minnesota. And so now you start, but at least those people, they were giving up their role in what they knew was not real to try to give service in what was real. But now you, you come full circle. So we went from, we knew the difference. Then there was a That Now you take, let's pause for a minute and look at reality TV culture. Which is anything but real. So here, we have vicarious uh, manufactured contests, races, you know, survivor, fear factor, all these things where we are induced or elicited the illusion of participation. Oh, I I can even vote for someone who I think is a great singer. And, And I think that I put all this energy into having relationship, and then I turn off the TV and nothing's changed. I'm just as lonely. I'm just as alone. I've just expended all my energy. So now there's a confusion about what is real and what is not. And then with Trumpism, we come full circle where there is actually a deliberate effort to replace truth with falsehood. So, you know, back in Roman times, you know, the Roman Colosseum, and this was deliberate, the ruling class in ancient Rome created the Colosseum to divert rebellious energy in the masses. So they would have lions eating people and gladiators fighting to the Everybody would get all worked up. And then they'd go home exhausted and they wouldn't have enough time or energy to demand a better life. So I don't think anybody has deliberately done that in the modern age. But reality TV is our virtual coliseum.
0: Yeah, I want to hang out here because I'm glad you bring up the, the Romans and the Coliseum because a few weeks ago, completely separate from reading this book, I was watching um, some documentaries on the Coliseum and they made a point that I hadn't really fully appreciated before. And the point was the Coliseum was an oval and it was layered and it was a social performance that kept everybody in their space and everybody saw where everybody else was.
1: Mm.
0: So, so much of the point of the Coliseum wasn't actually about the, the the what was happening in the arena. It was happening of who got to sit where, whose families, who were freedmen, who were slaves, who were women. Everything was determined, and everybody saw everything else, and so it maintained the social order. Mm. And so, in a way, you know, sort of looking at that as we've been, you know, sort of pulling Sapiens and sort of that thing and thinking about the idea of the way we create intersubjective reality. Right in this culture building, even then the Romans and the Greeks were saying this is what reality is. I sit here, emperor sits there, the royals sit here, the soldiers sit here, and this is the social order. And it's so it's not it doesn't feel new to me. It feels accelerated.
1: Yes. Right?
0: Accelerated and omnipresent. And I think some of the tensions. When I was thinking about the storms and fault lines, like when we look at social media and we look at some of the movements like Black Lives Matter and things like that, um, some people around when that popped up was like, well, where's all this stuff coming from? It hasn't been there before. Huh. And it's like, no, it's been there. Yes. yes. We just couldn't see it because of the to, – to, to, our, to our conversation, we didn't have the Coliseum set up that showed what was happening around. It showed what we wanted to see. But now we're in this place where we have to confront that the real world and what's on the media is not what's being shown to us. And some of the media that's being shown to us is false too. What in this dream, in this storm of information is real versus not real?
1: Well, and this is this, you know, to your point, that's a wonderful insight. And that even worse is the bubble of social media, which is another fault line, which is, you know, the development of this. um, I mentioned in there, there's a documentary maybe you've seen called The Social Dilemma. Outstanding. And where some of the people who created you know, Facebook and Google on the technical platforms and Twitter realize they created a Frankenstein monster and they quit and they're revealing that. And it's the greed and absolute disregard for humanity that has allowed those platforms to continue to isolate people and foment people. So, you know, we're aware of it now, but that, you know, you know, I was astonished in watching that and seeing that. For instance, if if you and I, if you are progressive and you are, you look up the definition of climate change, you will get existential global crisis. If you are conservative and you look it up, you will get hoax. And and so there is this dissolution, not only of reality, but you know. And so one of the things that that's become i feel intuitively so important is the encouragement for us to restore our direct connection to life because without it we lose our reverence for life and without the reverence for life we will be cruel and hurtful and not even think about it And it and that brings me you know i remember like so many people watching the insurrection erupt on tv and i you know forget beliefs and sides i witnessed barbaric violence while at the same time the mob was dissociated and taking pictures of themselves as if they were in a video game or they couldn't tell what was real And what was not. And so, you know, all these things, when we look at them, they're overwhelming. It's important to look at that context. But we have to return to what we can do individually, you know. And and Mother Teresa said wonderfully that courage is doing small things with love. So I think, you know, like, if I put my hand in water, I don't need you to tell me it's wet. And I know what pain is. I know what love is. I know what safety is. I know what betrayal is. We how do we restore? We can discuss how they we can interpret how these things came to be and what do we do with them? But the fact of our experience if we restore our direct connection of life, if we open our heart and our present and then this we will be more grounded and we will be able to endure the storms and we'll do less harm so this is where you know the opening metaphor i use in surviving storms is about redwood trees and these magnificent trees out in the west in california coastline the north and west up in in oregon too i believe and um northern california but they're you know some are a thousand years old some of them are hundreds of feet high and 20 30 feet in diameter and so even in severe weather they could get damaged and nicked and branches will fall but i don't i don't think they'll be uprooted and that's because their roots are strong and their trunks are wide and that's whatever one you want to have whatever spiritual practice you have will strengthen your roots and widen your trunk So we can endure the storms of this time.
0: Yeah. Um, It reminds me, um, and I'm going to feel really embarrassed if this was in your book, and I'm misremembering the source that I got it from. I've been doing a lot of reading. But it reminds me of the trees that... um, So a lot of scientists were building basically geo homes and growing trees inside these geo homes. And no matter what they did, they kept falling over. Right. And they could not figure it out. What's going on with these trees. So they did a bunch of testing. What they found out Mark was that the trees were falling over because there wasn't wind Ah, in, ah. in the geodome. There wasn't the tensions and winds that made strong roots and made so they would get to the point of a certain height and they wouldn't have the root structure and then they would topple. Right. Um, and so it's, I think when we look at storms and we look at the winds, they're the necessary evil of human existence. Like we got to figure out and do it, but there's also this other element. Oh, What about a, yeah. the storms? Yeah. What about the winds actually creates those strong woods? No one wants to go through it. I'm not saying let's heap on additional suffering.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. So so, you know, one of the things and one of the central paradoxes about storms, and it can be really conveyed by this haiku, by this wonderful uh, Japanese poet. And it it really conveys and I'll share it in a second, but really conveys how, yes, the, the difficulty is necessary and no one wants to do it. And it's not to advocate suffering. And what. Is opened in us is always more important than what opens us. And so, this is the, the brief story. In the 1600s, there was a samurai who grew tired of being a samurai, put down his sword, and, of all things, apprenticed as a poet with the master poet Basho. Now, I would have loved to talk to that guy, right? Like, what happened? Um, but his name was Masahide. And Masahide's famous haiku it goes like this: the "My barn, having burned to the ground, I can now see the moon more completely." My barn, having burned to the ground, I can now see the moon more completely. And you know what it says to me, because that's just my interpretation. I didn't talk to Masahide. I <laughs> don't know what he meant, but. The the process of the barn burning down, the wreckage of the storm, whatever it might be, that's not easy. That's real. And through loss and disappointment and grief, there is an entire one side of the journey of transformation that no one can bypass. And once the barn is out of the way, there's a vastness, an eternal perspective that has been lost for all our building that is now available again. And so both are true, both are true. And so, and another important dynamic of storms is, you know, if you're caught in a storm, there's a big storm going on right now as we're recording Mm -hmm. uh, in Florida, Ian. And, um, you know, certainly as a storm's approaching, you just want to get out of its way. But if you're caught in it, a storm, And this is a real, an actual storm or an emotional storm or a relational storm. Actually, the safest place is in the center. Mm -hmm. And often, spiritually, the safest place is in the center. And if we can get to the center, it's calm. And there's an anonymous Japanese saying from the 14th century that says, every storm has a hole in the middle like a navel through which a gull can fly in silence
0: i love it i love it um i'll drop it in the show notes but um i either got the reference to the trees from rajesh Seti's um think like a monk monk or Thich Nhat hans no mud no lotus which yeah. i'll also read so reading your three books all at the same work, time i'm like yeah, which I, one is did... new to me
1: so thank you for that that's
0: beautiful um and so Part of what we're talking about with getting to the root of things and the truth of things, there's this point about education and re-educating ourselves. And I love the the, the chapter in your book about sort of the two aims of education. So unpack that, and then there's – I have some follow-on questions about that. Sure.
1: Well, when we're governed by fear, and and this is the challenge, you know, it sounds trite or it's always been brought up, but we do have a daily – and perennial choice every one of us between love and fear and if we let you know i've learned and we're never going to eliminate fear but there's a difference between letting fear move through me and obeying fear fear is to be moved through not obeyed if we obey fear then we start to construct a life around fear and that changes everything now, if we're doing that, then we're afraid of anything that's new. We're afraid of anything that's different. We, and when we're afraid of difference, rather than celebrating it, rather than saying, thank God you're not me, teach me what I don't know. We're more together than alone. But if we're operating out of fear, then we look for things that will confirm what we already know. And that's not education. That is incestual thinking. So, but when we are secure and our roots are strong and our trunks are wide, I know that by being who I am, I will be fully open to all that I don't know that you might know some of. And then we can, and so then... The goal of, of education is to, the word educate means to draw out, literally to draw out deeper truths and things that are beyond our knowing so we can incorporate them and grow. And so the, these are, are two vast differences, and we're seeing it play out uh, in our society and globally right now. We're seeing strident resistance. I think because of this perfect storm, but it's playing out in I only if we're those quarters where people are afraid and and not fully awake. They're saying, I only want what I already know. I'm afraid of everything else. And that leads to violence. So violence comes out of fear and violence also is a desperate last attempt to feel You know the the need to feel and connect never goes away even if we uh put it inside a castle it will find its way out even if it gets distorted as violence and so we have you know if we don't have this direct connection to life and we're floating around and we're still looking for meaning we're still looking for connection and people are desperately reaching out mistaking intensity for meaning it's just intensity it's you know stimulus instead of true connection it's just stimulus it's just stirring up things but without opening our heart if we're numb oh well i'll take that that's better than nothing but it's really not better than nothing. <laughs>
0: Sometimes nothing is better, right? <laughs> a, a lot of times, right? And I think that's, um, it, it reminds me in some ways, you know, so much of the work that I do is related to doing meaningful work and how we use our attention and things like that. And, and part of where we've gotten is that for many people, boredom and nothing is painful right in the way that you and i experience pain right for some folks they they experience it in the same way psychological pain that is right and so if your only ways of orienting in the world are being super stimulated and saturated in this world that we're talking about of um you know um alternative facts and in in that sort of line of things or nothing and nothing is painful. We are sometimes can just be basic creatures. And it's like, I would rather have this soup of incoherent, weird, absurd experiences than sit in the pain of nothing or bored or being bored or sit with the shadow parts of myself that I'm uncomfortable
1: with. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, and this is another kind of, amplified by the the isolation of technology because when we're on in technology in the cocoon of it whether it's our cell phones or facebook or whatever it might be we again just like with the reality tv we think we're in relationship but we're not well with that cocoon of technology we think we're alone but we're really not so we're not with others, and we're not in true solitude. We're in a digital netherworld, which is life-draining. It's life-draining because we're not the two great. You know, through solitude, we we restore our direct connection to the universe, and through relationship, we restore the wonder of being human and compassion and kindness. So we're kind of trapped in between, in and so. And I should. I want to also say that um, this deep paradox that, as we're talking about this all, we are they, there is no they. We take turns being awake and asleep. Right now, hopefully, we're awake. Um, but we take turns being awake and asleep. And so it's all of our responsibility. All of our responsibility. And this is why I think it's so important to take small risks from wherever you are because often i believe it's through the life of feeling that we access spirit and you know often the initial experience of deep feeling if we have been closed it's like if you uh if a hose is bent or kinked well when you open it up there's a lot of pressure but if it's allowed to flow it trickles at a more normal rate so often if we are afraid of feeling or if we've been closed down our first experience is a lot of prep whoa you know I, nobody told me it was going to be like this i don't i don't know if i want this this is scary this, this is scary and um but if we can endure if we can hold and outweight the cloud of fear feelings start to flow and they start to become teachers you know so the, there's a great quote from rilke reina maria rilke the great poet and he said let everything happen beauty or terror no one feeling is final keep going keep going And I love that, you know, medieval monks, when asked how they practiced their faith, said by falling down and getting up. I I relate to that. that. It reminds me of the, and I got this from our,
0: from, I believe our joint friend, Susan Piper on this one. You know, Susan, right?
1: I think so. Yes.
0: Um, and it's a Buddhist quote. I can't remember which teacher she will reference, but it's, you know, the statement is that the bad news is we're always falling. The good news is there's no bottom. (laughs) right and it's just sort of we're always in this falling and when you can embrace that then it it both brings down the anxiety that you are falling and it brings down the anxiety that you might hit the bottom but it doesn't take away the disorientation of what the human experience is right because that's not the part to be taken away from
1: I'll throw in one more quote from Kierkegaard, which I love, as he said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Not, not anxiety that I'm going to the dentist tomorrow, but this disequilibrium, by definition, when things are new, they are for a time disorienting. And we are challenged to the thing, still, things that matter take time. And so if at first it feels disorienting, still lean into it. You know, it, it's interesting how, how little fledgling birds first fly. They don't get any instruction. The mother bird just one day kicks them out of the nest. So imagine their their first thing they do is fall. And out of fear and desperation, they via, via, almost violently, desperately flap their wings like, ah, And then all of a sudden, it starts to turn into fly. Oh, 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 I was meant to do this. And then they fly off. And I think that that happens to us with different aspects of our being, our identity, our deeper true self. You know, when we first push off or are pushed off, like the barn burning down, until we see the vastness, until we feel what's larger that's holding us or around us, its its anxiety is the dizziness of freedom.
0: The anxiety is the the dizziness of freedom. This sort of pulls in a few elements that um, you know. As as much as we've been talking at the spiritual or philosophical level, which we both clearly enjoy, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do want to sort of pull in because there are several points about the practices that you inspired or instigated and things like that. But I want to sort of turn the mirror on you on this one is like what practices, what one to three practices did either the process of writing this book or the storm that catalyzed this book prompt and catalyze you to start doing more of?
1: Well, one, very, very, you know, practical or or at this time of age, like I said, I'm 71 now and I'm I'm well, thankfully. But, you know, the whole looking at the storms, how I personalized this for me is <clears throat> I realize I started to realize that from the time, you know, when I almost died in my 30s, that. It, it, that's been like being a vet like a post traumatic stress you know even it's though it's all these years later you would think that it would minimize or and no you know i if i go to a annual physical and i sit in one of those little rooms that they make you wait in i could i could fall into a dozen moments difficult moments i was in and so without even realizing it all these years because of my experience i've always understood that things either you're well or you're sick like I've always felt it in extremes like so if something is out of the ordinary uh oh it must be wrong and as I've gotten older of course um, and I'm well but you know every day there's a little something different and so that way of looking at it though I wasn't that aware I was doing it it was more of a trauma response that is, um, that's not going to work. And so as I move into this part of my life, I, I need to reimagine how, what this physical experience of being human is like and not, not make everything that's different ill. And so, you know, in terms of storms, you know, trees that bend, that creak that's also how they survive storms and um and some of getting old is just creaking it doesn't mean there's something wrong and uh so i'm in that process of taking a long habit of having a trauma response to physical difference or discomfort or just unusual things um, and, and trying to take it in in a different way and still not, you know, I mean, ever since back then, I always have a uh, kind of an inner guideline for myself. If something is out of the ordinary, I'll give it five days, seven days, see if if it goes away or if it gets worse. So I won't ignore it, but I don't want to fall in the rabbit hole. Yeah. So, so it's been, you know, I realized that I can't at this age, I can't, even though I'm well, you know, I can't, that old way of looking at things doesn't, it's actually more painful.
0: I love that because there's, you know, as we sort of start transitioning here, there's, it sort of reminds me more of what I think is the Taoist um, look on storms and as a, you know um the the idea can be we're trying to constantly avoid or survive the storm right and we think of the storm as a moment and then there's a break and then there's another storm and then the break and then another storm but it's also kind of like the buddhist quote of like what if we just sort of recognize there's always a storm of some kind right whether it's like to your point it's not you know i'm well and then i'm sick <laughs> and I'm having all those things, there, there's an in-between, right? And we know when it gets more intense, when it gets less intense, and we can sort of navigate that with a with more fluidity and perspective and grace.
1: Well, and I think that you there's, know. and this points up to, there's a chapter in there on the broken hallelujah, and, uh, you know, where I, I really try to delve into Leonard Cohen's song and his his disposition, his deep inner disposition, and what that beautifully, I think, raises the whole thing ethic that he's raising is that we actually we need to go through what we go through and at the same time praise the larger forces of life that that's not just putting a good face on things that is making a resource of life you know and some of the images that that i try to use around that and talking about it is you know that if you're on a raft at sea and a huge wave comes and crashes your raft. That's painful, real for you. And it doesn't diminish the majesty of the sea. Both are true. Both are true. And even, you know, if you, if you break a bone, even in the moment that you realize you've broken a bone and you're, you're feeling such pain and you're calling for help, the two ends of that bone are already growing toward each other hallelujah and so you know he he really opens up a deeper you know the, there's a lot where where a lot of uh kind of religious traditions or churches or um they kind of sanitize how the the hallelujah song because it's all oh, praise god everything's wonderful no he, he was looking at a much deeper paradox of how do we, you know there there is strength and wonder and resource and resilience in holding the truth of all things. all things are true and and you know, I experienced that in in a, a big moment in my cancer journey where I, a chemo treatment was horribly botched, and I was very sick. And at the same time, I was I was realizing, mostly because I was exhausted, not throwing wisdom on my part. I was real. I was in a holiday inn. I was sick, uh, you know, throwing up. I had a rib removed in my back three weeks earlier, scared, and about to go to the emergency room. And it's starting to get toward dawn. And all of a sudden, I realized, well, this is real for me. And somewhere nearby, a baby's being born. And somewhere nearby, a couple's making love for the first time. And somewhere, you know, a, a parent and an adult child who haven't talked are finally sitting down and having coffee together. And and it didn't make what I was going through insignificant. It, it was a, it, there's a diversity to life. That is restorative. That's why spring works every spring, because there are thousands of things pollinated. No one way takes precedent. And, and, yeah, to be broken is no reason to see all things as broken.
0: I love that. So as the guest on the today's um, podcast, you get to leave our listeners with either an invitation or a challenge depending upon what mo- most resonates with you. So depending or based upon what we've discussed today, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do?
1: Well, the invitation and challenge are both are both the same and that is to inhabit fully the one life you are given by being as open-hearted and loving as possible. And this requires quiet courage. That there is a strength in kindness and and the whole mystery of connection and, and relationship that goes across in our time and across history is available to us if we dare. It, our authenticity is the key. If we if we when we can be fully here, everything fuels us. Everything brings us alive. Everything lights us.
0: Mark, thanks so much for joining us on the Productive, uh, the Productive Flourishing Podcast. And I look forward to see what next book you have in store for
1: us. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. All
0: right, listener. So you heard it from Mark. What can you do this week to explore and learn and lean into this one precious life you've been given and to use the gifts that you've been given. Until next time, stand tall and start finishing. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast
1: on iTunes.